Alrighty, just to kind of catch us up, just kind of, I'm not going to do a full review because I know you all get tired of hearing that, but always, with Paul writings, it's always good to keep knowing where we are because he keeps building on the things that he says. Oftentimes, even when he changes the subject matter, it's in relationship to what he's already said. But um, here in this letter, we've already seen uh, Paul talk about the fact that uh, these Colossians have a hope, which is a confident expectation. And it's based upon the fact, first of all, that they have a, a place reserved in heaven for them, and that's based upon the truth of the gospel and the grace of, of God. Uh, because of that hope in heaven and because of the fact that they have the grace of God, they need to understand that they need to live a certain way because of the fact that they understand their worth in the eyes of God's sight. And because of that, we can be strengthened, uh, we can have the perseverance that we need and the patience that we need and the joy that we need and the thankfulness that we need uh, because, as he tells us in verse 12, he has qualified us, he has made us partakers of an inheritance with all the other saints, he has rescued us from the power of darkness, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, and that's, of course, all based upon the fact that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore we have Forgiveness of sins. And then beginning in verse 15, he talks about this Jesus Christ, how he is God because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the highest of all things, being the firstborn of every creature. Uh, he is the creator of this world. That makes him God. Uh, he has existed before anything because he has always existed. That, has, that makes him God. Uh, he is the head of the church because he is God. And um, it pleased the Father... Uh, we're going to see now in verse 19 where we're picking up. Uh, because he is all those things and he is God, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now I'm just going to go ahead and read down to verse 22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. A lot going on there. But once again, the Apostle Paul is building on what he has said after he has told us that we have a home in heaven based on the gospel, and that gospel, of course, is based on uh, Jesus Christ, who is the one who redeems us. He is the one that uh, gives us forgiveness of sins of his blood. He establishes the fact that he is indeed God, but to emphasize it again as he finishes up this idea of him being God, he gets to verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, what does that mean, that in him all fullness dwells? Is it something that made the Father happy? It gave the Father pleasure to do what? All right. Very good. Let's, let's get this idea of dwell down here at the last part of verse 19. Uh, in this idea, in the Greek word for the word dwell is the idea of a permanent home in the Greek. Uh, we think of a dwelling place being a place where people live. Well, here we have the idea of this dwelling place, place being a permanent home. 
And he wants to make sure we understand that everything that he said about God being Jesus Christ, that's a permanent thing, that's not a temporary thing. And he needs to emphasize that because of the fact that the Gnostics oftentimes, in order to try to get their theology to work, because obviously they had problems with their theology, because someone could very easily say, well, you know, Jesus was born, we read about that in the Gospels, and we read about Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins, and uh, we read about the fact that he was both man and God. So how does that reconcile with your weird theology that matter is evil and that God is spirit and the two can't intertwine? Well, they came up with this silly idea that there were certain times when Jesus was a man and there are certain times he was God. When he was born, he was certainly a man. But then when he did the miraculous, he would separate himself from his human side because if he was human, there's no way in the world he could do uh, the miraculous, and he became a spirit at that time. And then later on, for something else he needed to have done, he would turn back into a man. So you've got him flip-flopping back and forth. And so one of the things that's being brought out here by the Apostle Paul is that this was a permanent indwelling. And the idea that all these things happened in Jesus Christ, that all fullness is a part of Jesus Christ as far as God is concerned. In other words, Jesus fulfills everything that God is. He fulfills everything that God wanted. And that makes us understand and understand the Greek word here for fullness. It's the idea of completeness. He completed everything. There's nothing else necessary. Everything that, that needs to take place has taken place in Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 19 where it says in the King James, for it pleased the Father that in Him should dwell, or should Him all fullness dwell, that's in the present active indicative in the Greek, meaning that this is a continuous line. It has no beginning and no end. It's the idea that this is a continuous action that never stops. It's always the case that Jesus Christ is God, and everything that completes God is completed in Jesus Christ, and everything that God deemed necessary that needed to be done was completed in Jesus Christ. And with that, he shuts the door on Gnosticism and the idea that you had to climb these different spiritual rungs. You know, you're never quite sure about your salvation. That's why there's so much emphasis on salvation in this chapter. But with the Gnostics, it was, the, it was always, there's another level you had to attain. Uh, you're, you're evil, complete evil, because you're matter, and you have to keep trying to climb out of that and become more spiritual. But it's a never-ending process. In every level, there's another level that needs to be climbed. And that worked out pretty good for the Gnostics because that always left them in charge because you finish one task that he laid down before you, they can say, well, here's another task you got to do. And you finish that one, well, there's another task you got to do. Uh, years ago, when I was a manager for a bank, I'd have my regional manager come in, and he'd look at the numbers over the year, over the year as far as the amount of loans I did, how much, um, what my collection percentage was, um, you know, all those different things they look at. And if I had a wonderful year, he'd pat me on the back. But on January the 1st, guess what happened? Yeah, like it didn't exist. It just went away. I had to start all over again. And I couldn't rest on last year. I had to start, it was all starting over again. And oftentimes the Gnostics would do the same thing. And so he is saying that everything that we need, everything that is necessary for salvation and be close to God is found in Jesus Christ. It's in him. 
that God has pleasure. It's in Him that all this is going to take place. You're not going to find it anywhere else, no matter what somebody else tells you. Any questions or comments on that? I kind of rambled there a little bit. All right. But notice what he does now. He tells us how this works. And he keeps emphasizing this particular idea about salvation being in Jesus Christ, first of all, because that's where it is. But secondly, he wants to make sure the Colossians have the confidence that they need to continue in their faith and living the Christian life because of the fact the Gnostics keep telling them they are wrong. And then the third thing, the reason why he keeps doing this, is to emphasize that the Gnostics are false. They're teaching a false religion. But notice what he says. He says in verse 20, he says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Right there in the middle of the verse is where I want to start, and then we'll branch out around it. It's a word that's found in verse 20. It's also the word, the very last word of verse 20 word, 21. There's the word reconcile. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be reconciled? All right, to bring back together. So kind of like if you break a vase, you super glue it back together. All right, unite. All right, bring back to a previous state. Um, did I see another hand over here? Do you want to say something, Mike? Or are you just waving? Okay. Um, we sometimes talk about, uh, we don't do it much anymore because we've got uh, computers that we do it very easily now, but there was a time, uh, either at the end of the month or maybe the end of six months, no matter how lazy you are, you would reconcile your checkbook. And that was to make sure that what you had for as in your ledger agreed with what you had taken out of your checkbook or whatever. You know, it was reconciled and it was made right again. All right, that's kind of the idea, but here with God, it's more the idea of the fact that um, <clears throat> there is a barrier between God and I. There's a barrier between God and you. Um, a cause of sin, and he's going to talk more about this, um, we can't be with God. We can't have anything to do with God. Uh, you remember the passage over in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, where uh, God speaking through Isaiah, he says, it's, it's not that my hand is so short that I can't save you, nor is my ear so dull of hearing that I can't hear you, but your sins and your iniquities have separated, separated you from me. And so God couldn't have anything to do with us. Um, Paraphrase what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. He talks about how that with the flesh, there's, there's no way in the world we can reach God. Um, God has, has become an, uh, something that we can't attain anymore. And the idea of reconciliation carries with it in its simplest term in the Greek is the idea of becoming friends again. Um, there was a time when, of course, God doesn't have Facebook, but he unfriended you. And reconciliation means that you're friends again. Uh, it's no wonder that uh, when um, James was talking about Abraham, you remember there in James chapter 2 when he's talking about faith and works and whatnot, he talks about how that because of Abraham's faith, righteousness was imputed upon him and he became the friend of God. God wants us to be friends. It's impossible for us to become friends 
without something happening in between. There needs to be a reconciliation. And, of course, the point that he's making right here is that this reconciliation uh, comes through, of course, Jesus Christ himself. So he's adding on again, once again, this idea of how that Jesus Christ is, is the fullness, he's, he's, the, uh, he's everything. All through this, he keeps saying all things, all things, all things. Jesus Christ is all things, but he's also the one that reconciles all things. Notice verse 20, it says it right there in the middle of the verse, by him to reconcile all things to himself. And when he does that, we see in verse 20 that we have peace. Now what peace are we talking about there? All right. The Bible talks about, the Bible talks about a peace that passeth understanding. Uh, remember, it's hard to understand. We don't understand how it works. We don't understand why we even get the opportunity. Uh, but the Bible tells us that there is peace. Uh, that's a part of reconciliation. If you had a, a fight with one of your friends and you were separated and it's now been reconciled, what has happened? You are at peace again. And when you're at peace, it makes you feel better. When you're separate because of, of whatever the problem may be, that doesn't make you feel good. You know, sometimes when we've either had a fight with a spouse or with a sibling or with a child or whatever, oh man, it will tear you up inside. But when it's all been reconciled and it's all been made good again, that's one of the most wonderful feelings you've ever felt. And that's the idea that, that Christianity is supposed to give you is because of what Jesus Christ has done. We can be reconciled and have peace. I thought I saw another hand somewhere. It was yours again, okay? Wait a minute. Jeff had something to add, and I'll come back to you. Oh, go ahead. Right. The Gnostics don't want you to have any of that confidence. And we've already talked about earlier in the text that, that hope literally is that confident expectation. Yep. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about the fact that in the Old Testament there was an endless a flow of sacrifices. Even the high priest had to go in every year and offer sacrifices uh, for himself. Uh, I just happen to think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because of our faith and what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are justified in the eyes of God. And that's going to be brought out more here in just a minute in some more colorful ways. But that lets us have peace with God. Uh, God and I are on speaking terms. God and I have a relationship. Uh, we're not fighting with each other anymore uh, because of the fact of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, and has reconciled all things. The means by which this reconciliation is what? Look at verse 20. Tell me what the means of this reconciliation is. What is the thing that actually did the reconciling? The blood of the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood that brings about reconciliation. And that in and of itself gives us hope that the reconciliation is what Jesus Christ has done on God's behalf. It's God that extended the reconciliation. We can't extend the reconciliation. It comes from God, and it was through the blood of, him, of the cross. And he, as I said, he keeps emphasizing the all things. He's trying to, to make sure we understand that there's completeness here, that you don't need all this junk that the Gnostics are saying. It goes to all things, and then he to emphasize it again, it's through him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, obviously, we can understand what he means by the things in earth, and that would be us. 
that takes care of, of, the point is that all things here on earth, as far as reconciliation is concerned, can be reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. But what throws people off, and people smarter than myself have debated this, and you can find seven different commentaries saying seven different things, but let's talk about this idea of reconciliation in heaven. What in the world would that mean? Because he's, he's trying to, to emphasize the fact that it covers everything, whether they be things in the earth, I think literally in the Greek it's on the earth, or things in heaven. What would that mean? And don't feel bad if you say something that, that sounds strange because there are stranger things out there when people look at this. Any, any, any thoughts, any ideas? Well, I'll just give you some ideas that, go, that people have said down through the years, different writers. Um, obviously, first of all, before we tell you what, that, what they have said, the, prob- the reason why there's a problem here, why would there be, need to be any reconciliation in heaven? Yeah, but they can't be reconciled. Peter talks about, I can't remember the exact verse now in First Peter, but talks about how they are in chains of darkness forever. They have no plan of salvation. They can't be reconciled. <clears throat> so that wouldn't apply to them. There's no plan of salvation for the angels. Jesus didn't die on the cross for angels. That's the problem that we start running into. Why is that that way? Trish, you want to say something? You're going to say something he was going to say. Okay. Well, yes. Okay. That might be the possibility. The problem we got with this, we don't know exactly what Paul meant. It meant something to people in Colossae. I don't think he would have wrote it. And it meant something to Paul when he wrote it. He knew exactly what he meant. But we don't know exactly what he meant. There's been different ideas uh, down through the, um, the, the years by different people. Some people think that the reconciliation that's being talked about in heaven is, is a reconciliation for the angels as far as the way that angels looked at men. Uh, there's a guy that, there's some people who hold the idea that the angels were upset with mankind for the way that they were treating God and the Jesus dying on the cross reconciled the relationship uh, that angels had as far as the fact that um, angels knowing who God is and knowing who, what Jesus Christ is and um, looking at mankind and looking at the advantages they had and the love that was shown to them by God, that it caused anger with the angels. And this, with Jesus dying on the cross, then that anger had been reconciled. Like I said, there's some strange things out there. Uh, go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if we've been reconciled by God, we have a confident expectation of going to heaven. Absolutely. I think I saw Flo's hand first, and then we'll come to Michael. All right. And that's, and that's a very good point. There's some writers, commentators, who think that's all he's doing. He's just saying, I'm covering everything. You name anything that can be named that needs to be taken care of as far as reconciliation is concerned, I've taken care of it. Now, obviously, there's no... Uh, need for reconciliation in heaven as far as salvation is concerned, but he's using some hyperbole to say, he's, he said it so many times already, all things, all things, all things. He's, he's everything. He takes care of it all, and that, that might be all that he's doing. That's Michael. There you go. See, there's another thing that people look at. They say that the ones that's being reconciled now are the ones who have already died and already in the Hadean realm, uh, whether it to be, uh, or should be paradise in that particular case, if they were because of their faith, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others, 
they, and Jeff's already mentioned this with the sacrifices, they always look forward to the cross. Well, now with the cross, everybody that was alive at the time Jesus died on the cross was reconciled. Everybody that died before the cross was reconciled. And everybody that's going to live after the cross, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, are going to be reconciled. And so that covers the whole gamut of everything here on earth and everything in heaven. And so that would cover anything uh, as far as uh, that is concerned. And um, another way of looking at this, the way another commentator put it is, that all that Paul is saying here is he's saying it's been settled once and for all. Nothing else is coming out of heaven. Nothing else is going to happen here on earth. Anything that's going to be done as far as our reconciliation is concerned, on God's part, it has been done. There's nothing more that needs to be done, and there's nothing more that will be done. This covers it all. There's nothing else that's going to happen. And maybe that's the best explanation of all. But um, there's also the idea of the fact that maybe Paul was making uh, a, a dig at the Gnostics once again here. And this might be, you know, a good possibility. Remember the Gnostics, um, they had this idea that there were different levels of demigods, angels, or whatever. Uh, you had God Almighty, who was perfect because he is perfectly spirit, and you had man down here on earth, which was perfectly evil because he was matter. And they had to have a descending hierarchy, if you will, coming down with different angels and different demigods and whatnot to get to the point where they finally had a way the earth to be created and a way for Christ to get here. And maybe all Paul is saying here is that there's no need for that. There's little different demigods and angels and whatnot because the reconciliation is taking care of all of it, whether it be here on this earth or whether it be in the spirit realm that you might call heaven. Um, it's all taken care of. And so maybe that's the idea there. But uh, we don't know for sure. And whatever idea you want to hold, as long as it doesn't violate Scripture, um, I think that would be fine. But any other questions or comments on that? All right. Boy, time just keeps moving on. But notice what he says after, after talking about how that we've been reconciled, that we now have peace, and it's been handled completely by Jesus Christ. Notice how he describes us. And he's doing, two th- he's, he's, he's doing a, a comparison and contrasting here, because in verse 21 he tells us what we used to be, and then in verse 22 he tells us what we are. We've got a before and after here. And it's amazing what we were before, but it's even more amazing what we are after. It just doesn't even seem possible, but that's what the Bible says. He says, before, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. What does it mean to be alienated? All right, a long way from God is what you've got. You're a long, long way from home. What, what were you going to say? All right, being pushed away from God? Separated from God? Um, we use the word alien even today. What does it mean if someone's an alien? Outsider. What? They don't belong. Um, we hear about illegal aliens. Well, those are people who are breaking the law uh, by being somewhere where they don't belong. And that's kind of what fits here, you know, because of us breaking the law, if you will, 
We have been separated from God. We're aliens from God. We, we don't have a place with God anymore. We can't be in His presence anymore. That in and of itself would be a pretty bad thing. You know, Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians that without God you have no hope. But then he goes on and look what he tells us as far as our relationship with God. How many people realize that they were enemies and at war with God? That's what Paul says here. At one time before we were reconciled, we were enemies of God. Uh, we were on the other side. We were the opposing force, if you will. And he goes on and says, this is done in, well, it's not um, yours been added. It's not in the original translation, but enemies in mine. What does it mean to be enemies in mine? Does that mean I just thought about being an enemy? All right, evil thoughts. All right, very good. <clears throat> you've got a contrasting of wills here. You've got what God's will is, and you've got what your will is. What causes us to become a sinner to begin with? What would you say, Jeff? Selfishness. It's when we decide what, that we're going to do what we want to do instead of what God wants to do. God has made us a creature of choice with freedom of choice. He didn't make us robots. We all have the decision what we're going to do, and there comes a time in our life when we, because of our own selfish will, which I always don't know if it was meant to be that way with the word, but if you take the first syllable of every part of selfishness, what is it? S-I-N. Selfishness leads to sin, and because we've decided that we're going to rebel against God, we have rebelled against God with with our evil works, and we are now enemies of God. Okay, that's what he's saying. If you want to understand and appreciate what you were before you were a Christian, uh, you had had no place being with God, you were his actual enemy, and you were involved in wicked works. But thanks be to God, the rest of verse 21 says, yet now hath he reconciled. That's the thing that's in between. And the thing that's in between, he tells us in verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death. Now, why do you think Paul says in the body of his flesh through death? Why don't you just say Christ died for you? All right. He's nailing those Gnostics again. That was a real body on that cross. It was a real flesh and blood body. It wasn't just some kind of ghost up there. It wasn't some kind of figment of your imagination. That was real flesh and blood that died up there. He was really man and he was really God. Because, folks, that's the only way it's going to work. That's the only way the reconciliation can happen. You had to have someone that can go between us that understood both mankind and understood both God. He's the composite of what was needed to be I see the Bible refers to him as being our high priest, our mediator, our intercessor. He can reconcile us because he was real flesh and he is real God. And so that reconciliation took place in the body of his flesh. But look what's happened now. Look what happens now. He says to present you, talking about me and you, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. First question I have to ask myself is, uh, who is he presenting me to? That's exactly right. He's presenting us to God. Have you ever thought about that concept? That after we become a Christian, something happens to us. 
in a spiritual way. Jesus says, I want to present to you this new babe in Christ, and his name is Jim Farr, or his name is Scott Slauson. I'm presenting this to you now, God, based on what I did on the cross to reconcile you. But look how he presents us. First of all, he presents us holy. Folks, that boggles my mind. When I become a Christian, he presents God, presents me before God, and he says, God, I want you to see somebody. Here's Jim, and he's holy. Now, what does that word holy mean? What's that? Pure. Purity is a good word there. Do you ever hear of a being in heaven called holy? Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. Same word. Dwell on that a minute. It's the same word that we use for saints. The word here, hagios, is the same word that he used very early in this chapter when he refers to us as saint. It means that is set apart, that which is devoted to God. Um, The priests were called holy because they were set apart to serve God. Well, look what's happened. When we become Christians because of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, he presents us to God and he sees something that is pure. He sees something that is set apart. He sees something that is devoted. When God looks at us because of what Jesus Christ has done, he sees someone who is holy. And that just blows my mind. But if he just said that, that would have been one thing. But notice the next thing he says. He presents me to God as being unblameable. What does that mean, unblameable? All right, totally forgiven. It's interesting, this word here in the Greek is probably, I mean, maybe you have it in some of your translations, I know it's closer to unblemished. It's the idea of being spotless. It's the same word that's used in connection to, for a sacrificial animal when they had to bring it before the priest in order to make sure it was a proper sacrifice. It had to be spotless and unblemished. There couldn't be anything wrong with it whatsoever. It's the exact same word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, where, or we'll start at verse 18, where he says, you've not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. That was a part of the vain lifestyle of your fathers before but you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb without spot and without blemish. The exact same word is used right there. And once again, when I think about that, that just blows my mind that because of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, He presents me now before God, and I'm spotless. I'm blameless. It's just just amazing. And then he goes on and says, unreprovable. And then the King James, that sounds like somebody that can't be reproved. It sounds kind of odd, but that's not exactly what it means. Uh, in fact, some of your newer translations might have something better. Anybody having something different besides unreprovable? What do you have, Trish? Free from accusation. That's the exact translation of it. No one can bring any accusation against us. Now, the question needs to be asked, who's going to bring an accusation against us? Well, God could, but he's not going to do that anymore. But who's going to do it now? Satan. Satan's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. Is there anybody else that might could accuse you of anything? How about other people? Other people can accuse you of things, right? But the point of the reconciliation here is that uh, none of these things can take place because of the fact that we are now 
unaccusable. Um, it just blows my mind that now, because of Christ's reconciliation, when God looks at me, He sees me as being holy. He sees me as being unblameable or unblemished. And He sees me as someone who is, cannot be accused of anything. And if anything would have given the Colossians confidence and should give us confidence and shows you the power of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. When you look at these two verses and you put them together and you see on this side of the equation that we are alienated, enemies, wicked works, reconciliations in the middle and you come on this side and you're holy, blameless, and unreproachable. It's just... The power of the blood of Jesus Christ, it just, it's just uh, boggles the mind. But any questions or comments on that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the main thing that's taught in denominations uh, today. But the only way, um, and there's just no way that can work. <laughs> uh, as we've talked about before, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 tells us that's how we obey the gospel we um, emulate or follow after the same pattern of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, in that same chapter, in Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 17, he says, You were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and you now are the servants of righteousness. Once again, you've got that before and after picture. You've got the before, you were belonged to uh, Satan. The after was, now you belong to Christ. What's the thing that's in between? Obeying that form of doctrine. What was the form of doctrine they obeyed? That word form means pattern, similitude, or something that is like as. And the like as he had talked about earlier in the chapter when he says that when a Christian dies to sin, it's like Jesus dying on the cross. When he is buried in the watery grave of baptism, it's like he's being buried uh, in the tomb of Jesus. And then when he rises to walk in newness of life, it's a picture of Jesus rising from the dead. Now, the thing you were talking about earlier, in the denominational world, a lot of them baptize, but it's not for the purpose of being saved. It's either to, as an outward sign of an inward faith or to join a church or to, to uh, prove my allegiance to that type of thing. But notice how the whole picture that's there in the Bible changes if you do that way. Uh, you have a person who is dying to sin, and then he rises to walk in newness of life because he said the sinner's prayer or accepted Jesus into his heart. And then a little bit later on, because of an outward sign of an inward faith, well, let's put him in the grave. Let's bury this sucker. Well, you're burying a live person. You don't bury live people. You bury dead people. So it just defeats the whole purpose of what Paul was saying there in Romans chapter 6. And, of course, all of you all know that, but it's good to reemphasize that again. But good, good point. Anything else? Hmm. Well, at least we did get pretty much through uh, verse 22, but any final questions or anything before we leave it? Because I want to leave you hanging. All right, we'll stop there. I hope you leave here tonight feeling pretty good about what Christ has done for you.